In Mark 13, 13, Jesus warned his disciples, you will be hated by everyone, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. There was a warning from the very beginning by Jesus himself. One attribute of fruitful evangelists is fortitude. The ability to persevere and withstand insult and endure pain and take hits. Watch as Paul's ministry begins, his missionary journey unfolds. He and Barnabas have just been dispatched by the church at Antioch to go on their mission trips to share the gospel as they go. And they're going to take hits, but they're also going to bear fruit. These two things go hand in hand. I think it's time for some Christians to be willing to take some hits. I think it's time for some Christians to be willing to endure some pain. Watch what God does amidst the pain that's endured by Paul and Barnabas. Watch him save people. You're going to see him encounter a dude who claims to be a sorcerer. That's weird. You're going to see him speak to a synagogue and everything looks awesome at first, but then, then comes the Jewish council that insults him. You're going to see Paul and Silas, Paul and Barnabas rather, endure pain and insult and be used of God miraculously to share the gospel. An unwillingness as a Christian to endure any pain or any insult whatsoever, no thumbs down on your YouTube videos, no angry emojis on your Facebook posts, is a surefire way to not bear any fruit for the kingdom of God. Watch Paul. This is where the torch we inherited first started. And people who share the gospel have been taking hits for millennia. Maybe time for you to join them. This is Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse four. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. It's an island in the middle, uh, the northeastern corner of the Mediterranean. That's where Barnabas was from, as a natural starting point. They're going to go from Antioch to Cyprus and back, Antioch to Cyprus to Pisidian Antioch and back. They're going to do that twice, and these are three missionary journeys. Arriving in Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. They also had John as their assistant. When they, arrived, uh, when they had traveled the whole island as far as Paphos, they came across a sorcerer, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the sorcerer, that is the meaning of his name, opposed them and tried to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember what I told you about those words? Anytime you see the words, somebody was filled with the Holy Spirit, whatever follows is awesome. Stared straight at Elimus and said, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil and enemy of all that is right. Won't you ever stop perverting the straight paths of the Lord? Now look, the Lord's hand is against you. You are going to be blind and you will not see the sun for a time. Immediately, a mist and darkness fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then when he saw what happened, the proconsul believed because he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It was harsh, right? He's filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he gave Bar-Jesus some of those delicious Andes mints that they give you at Olive Garden. 
No, he's filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And he says to him, you are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil and enemy of all that is right. Wow, that's harsh. Evidently, that's how the Holy Spirit speaks to people who practice paganism. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the righteous anger of Jesus? Overturning tables, fashioning a whip out of cords, driving people out of the temple. There is a righteous anger. And this is Paul filled with the Holy Spirit. So if you attend a secret sensitive seminary, one that just skips the hard parts of scripture, don't talk about the wrath of God. Don't ever talk about repentance from sin. Just talk about the happy good stuff. Man, by the way, congrats. Your church is going to be huge. This right here, this passage would fail a seeker-sensitive seminary's homiletics test. Paul would flunk out of that seminary. I mean, look at this. Look at this. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery, you son of the devil. Like, man. This is incredibly harsh, but is it? What does he claim upon him? There's no, there's no scripture text that, that says that God told him, I'm going to make him blind. Rather, it could be that by this authority given him as an apostle, that he could just speak this over Bar-Jesus, also known as Elimus, that he would go blind. Here's the thing, Here, here's the thing about that. That's exactly what Paul went through himself. Do you remember this? In Acts chapter nine, he encounters the resurrected Jesus and he is blinded. So what he's spoken over Elimus is actually quite gracious in that it gives him time to repent and believe it was what happened with Saul. What he's proclaimed over Bar-Jesus, what he's proclaimed over Elimus is exactly, exactly what happened to him for crying out loud. Like Saul was there overseeing the very first martyrdom of the New Testament, looking on as Stephen prayed for the people who threw the stones that extinguished his life. And Saul gave his pharisaical authority to that execution. And then he would encounter Jesus. He would be blinded for three days. And it was when Ananias came to him, put his hand on his shoulder and said, brother Saul, that the scales fell from his eyes and was saved. This was actually merciful because Elimus had the opportunity to experience exactly what Saul experienced. No, being filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that you're nice to evil. It doesn't mean that you appeal to and appease and acquiesce to satanic teaching. He ought to have known better. I, I, I don't know what kind of sorcery this was. I don't, I don't know, if, I don't know if, if he was performing tricks or if he legitimately was doing some stuff that made no sense and you know, given demonic power. I don't know what it is. It doesn't matter. That's false teaching. That's syncretism to mix sorcery with Jewish belief. That was never permitted. That's not, there's nothing in the Torah that would ever allow that. So that's a false teacher. And this is how Saul spoke to him. You son of the devil. Wow. Evidently, that's how the Holy Spirit speaks in some cases. But watch the difference now. He's going to go speak to a gathering of Jews. And he's going to engage them in a totally different way. And then in your curriculum this week, he's going to go to Lystra and it's an entirely Gentile town. He's going to take a totally different approach. He's going to, it's going to be so nice and kind and fluffy and sweet. He's going to refer to God as the creator of joy. It's much nicer there, right? And then when, when we go to, when, we, when he goes to the actual Mars Hill, not the Mars Hill church that was down the street, the actual Mars Hill, 
after which that church was named. He's going to take a totally different approach there. He's going to build upon the pagan altar to an unknown God as a platform, as a catalyst to establish rapport and connection and then share the gospel based on what people already knew to be true. But let the record show that his first encounter is with a sorcerer and he was not polite. He was righteous. Sometimes being good excludes being nice. And that was the case with this dude practicing sorcery and straight up teaching falsities. The Lord worked miraculously and the proconsul was saved. He was astonished at what God had done. So it could have been an evidentialist based faith. Nonetheless, it says that he believed. I want to talk to my skeptical friend because I do see something profound here. I do see, I do see a desire to, to know the word of God. That's a good thing. That's true objectivity. He actually sent for Paul and Barnabas because the text says that he wanted to know the word of the Lord. It says in verse seven, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. Sergius Paulus was an intelligent man. It's the proconsul. That's his title. He was an intelligent man. This man summoned Paul and Barnabas and wanted to hear the word of God. Man, give me more atheists like that. We actually want to know what the book says. I actually want to read it. Consider Bar-Jesus the one who was just there to sabotage. I'll never, I'll never forget this. When I was in high school, I was walking with someone. We were going on a trip and there was this fleet of buses and I was on one side of my friend and there's another guy on the other side of my friend and I was sharing the gospel. This guy heard me sharing the gospel and came up and began countering it and my poor friend was stuck in the middle. And that guy that was trying to dissuade my friend of the gospel that I was sharing, interrupting a private conversation with me and my buddy, claimed to be an atheist, but that doesn't flow from atheism. What flows from atheism logically? Nihilism. Like Stephen Hawking says, you're just a computer. When you die, you're unplugged and the lights go out. Okay, if that's what you believe, why try to convince anyone of anything ever? Nihilism is the undeniable, unavoidable end of true atheism. True, actual atheism leads to what Richard Dawkins says, cold, pitiless indifference. You must look at a mass shooting on the news. And if you react with anything other than cold, pitiless indifference, you're not acting like an atheist. You're not logically following your own paradigm. Because if we're all just a bunch of computers waiting to be unplugged, who cares if one computer unplugs a whole bunch of other computers? Ultimately, there's no morality and there's nothing evil there. But to the marrow of your bones, you know that what you're looking at is evil. And when you presuppose evil, you necessarily presuppose good. And when you presuppose good and evil, you are no longer thinking like an atheist. You are necessarily theistic in your worldview. So stop, my skeptical friend. If you see your reflection in Bar Jesus at all, this desire to dissuade people of their Christianity, would you stop pretending like you're neutral? Because you obviously aren't. The, the, the most sincere atheists I've ever met didn't care to have the conversation at all. And they thought that atheist clubs were the stupidest things they'd ever heard of in their entire lives. And the last thing they would ever do was waste their time debating with a Christian. Because at least on the surface, like they truly didn't believe. The most passionate, ardent, anti-Christian atheists that I've ever met, they're all Christians now. The passion that you exhibit, if you have any passion, any skin in the game, if you give a rip what anybody else thinks, 
evidently, you're not neutral. And there's part of you that is trying to shove that pesky Holy Spirit away. And he's just not going to stop pursuing you because he loves you. And deep down, you know, you know that you know that you know the eternal power and divine nature of God have always been obvious to you. It's clearly understood through what God has made. You have no excuse. And that's why you get passionate because when you start to experience the Holy Spirit's drawing on your heart, suddenly your precious sin comes in danger. That's why you want to dissuade others of the same thing. You end up doing the will of the very devil in whom you profess disbelief. You ought to be indifferent. Instead, you're passionate. Your worldview does not have any grounds for passion about anything 